How many of you are ready for the Word of God today? Amen. It's so exciting for me to introduce our guest speaker this morning, Pastor Mike Atkins. He is no stranger to our fellowship. He's spoken here several times, did a series on Wednesday nights, and blessed our leadership and our elder and staff retreat. Uh, Mike and his sweet wife, Patty, are just a treasure to the body of Christ. And I have personally found him to be uh, warm, encouraging, insightful, and even prophetic. Mike's ministry is life-changing teaching of the Word of God, and it's hard not to be stirred up under his teaching. He served as a lecturer for YWAM. He's been a successful senior pastor, missionary, and guest ministers travel across the country uh, preaching the Word of God and building up the body of Christ. He is the president and founder of Mike Atkins Teaching Ministry, and you can tune in to his teaching on Facebook and YouTube and his uh, uh, own website. He is a dear friend of our pastor and serves as his personal accountability pastor, a perfect candidate for today. So let's give a warm restoration welcome to Pastor Mike Atkins. Good morning. I, I don't think I want to ever be introduced again as, as a guest speaker here, amen? I'm just going to be family from now on. <laughs> you know, um, what you're observing, if you're a visitor here today and haven't been around it before, what you just saw and what I see here every time I come is a culture of honor. And uh, I've been in many churches that had a culture of flattery. And um, literally, you walked in from the moment you walked in, everybody was smiling, everybody was friendly, everybody was speaking nice to everybody. But the depth of what you were observing was very shallow because it was a culture of flattery. And flattery is frequently has a f kind of a intent to get something done, to get something from you. Um, but a culture of honor comes from the heart. It can't be imitated. It comes when you look at a person and you see them as though you just beheld a Stradivarius violin. And something inside of you goes, wow, there's a, a child of God. And that flows from the very top down from how God treats us and perceives us uh, to how the pastor and the staff does. And it's a precious thing. Trust me, it's a very, very precious thing and very rare. So never lose sight of it. Uh, what you're seeing here is not flattery. It's honor. It's a big difference. If you've got a Bible, I want you to just look with me real quickly at 2 Corinthians chapter 4. You know, they always ask me if I have scriptures to put up on the screen, and I rarely do. Sometimes I, I come up with one just to satisfy the media. <laughs> but I frequently don't really know which all the direction I'm going to go, so I, it's hard for me to always give that. But I know the Lord wanted me to start here for just a moment, and it's here in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, certainly one of the richest uh, most profound passages of Scripture in all of the Bible. 
But in verse 7 is one of the most important verses in my own walk with Christ and I think in regards to the body of Christ at whole and I think in regards to restoration's future in particular as I've been praying for you. It says simply this, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. For we are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. We're struck down, but not destroyed. We're always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then death is at work in us, but life in you. You know, I believe from the very beginning of our walk with the Lord, there's two things that God is at trying to accomplish. The first one has to do with convincing or persuading us of the fallenness of our, of our lives, that we have a problem called sin, and that that problem called sin has separated us from God. And as a result, my definition of sin, a self-inspired narrative where I start writing the story of my own life and leaving God out of it because that's exactly what Adam and Eve did in the garden. They were following God's script and then they started to write their own and leave God out of it. And as a result, all of the fallenness and the brokenness of the human condition came into existence. And we're born in that broken condition and we go through life in that broken condition and that fallenness, but trying to figure out, trying to make life make sense, trying to work our way through to some kind of solution. And so the very first uh, task, if you will, that the Holy Spirit has, that God has in our life is to get us to the point where we recognize that fallenness. And we recognize that that fallenness is such that it's created a breach between us and God. And that there's nothing we're able to do through our good works, through our personal actions, through whatever it is we want to try and bridge that gap because the gap is just too vast. The Lord is so much different, so much higher, so much more extraordinary than we can conceive of. And our condition is one that we cannot fix. You know, that's why the Bible says in the Old Testament that when the shadow of the cross was shown in the slaying of the lambs of the Old Testament, the Bible says that the person who would bring the lamb to the priest, when the lamb was brought to the priest, the priest did not ever inquire about the man. He didn't ask him, well, tell me what did you do? He didn't ask him, well, how He didn't speak to him about his sin. The priest's interest was not in the sin of the man. The priest's interest was in the worthiness of the lamb. And so the priest would begin to examine the lamb, not the man. He would begin to take the, the wool and pull it back to see if there was any skin disease. He would look at the hoof to see if there was any brokenness there. He would look at the teeth and the gums to see if there was any sign of sickness or disease, look into the eyes. He was examining the lamb, and at some point, after he had examined the lamb for a period of time, he would say, the lamb is worthy. A worthy lamb was a lamb that was without spot and without blemish. A lamb that was not the 
discarded, but was the preferred. It was the best of the flock. And the person had brought a worthy lamb. And in Leviticus, it tells us in chapter 3 that when the lamb was determined to be a worthy lamb, then the man would lay his hands on the head of the lamb, thereby symbolically transferring his guilt from himself to the lamb. And then the lamb would be slain, and his blood would be poured out, it would be placed on the altar, and then as a result of the worthiness of the lamb, the man would have his sin covered. That's what the word atonement means. It means to cover sin. And because the lamb was worthy, man's sin was covered from the eyes of holy God so that God could dwell in the midst of Israel. He could dwell in the temple, in the tabernacle, but no man could approach him except the high priest. And the high priest could only come one day out of the year into the Holy of Holies and he could only come with the perfect sacrifice of the blood in order to atone for the sins of the whole nation. But the man's sin was not removed, it was covered by the blood of the Old Testament sacrifices. But when Jesus came down to be baptized by John the Baptist, the Bible tells us that John the Baptist looked up and saw him and he pointed at him and he said, Behold, there is the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. Every sacrifice of the Old Testament was given for only one reason. It was given in order to, re, to uh, point us to the coming of the one perfect sacrifice, the one whose blood would not simply cover man's sin, but whose blood would remove man's sin forever as a barrier between him and a holy God, would give man a position of perfect righteousness before God something he could never have earned, he could never have deserved, he could never have worked his way towards, something he could never bridge, a gap he could never have taken care of. But as a result of the Father, when we come before him with Christ as our offering, uh, with him as our substitutionary sacrifice, when we come before him, he doesn't look to examine us. He looks to examine his son, and he finds his son perfect in every way. And he finds his son's sacrifice perfect in every way. And he declares the lamb is worthy. And all he asks of us to do is to place our sin in symbolic representation, to cast our sin upon him, upon what he did. And there the Bible says he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace fell upon him so that by his stripes... We could be healed. The breach could be removed. God never will ever to anyone who has looked to the perfections of his own son as the perfect lamb will never hold against you ever again for as long as eternity lasts your sin anymore. You have a position of perfect righteousness before a holy God because not of what you've done, but because of what he's done. Not because of what you could accomplish, but because of what he has accomplished. Not because of what you can achieve in order to try and uh, uh, bridge the gap, but because of what Christ has done. 
When you accept that, you are given a permanent position, a position that is bestowed upon you, a position into which you're born by the Spirit, a position that can never be taken from you, a position that does not add to or subtract from, a position that is never changed by your daily actions or activities, a position of perfect right standing before a perfectly holy God because of a perfect sacrifice that was given by a perfect Lamb. Never question ever again your position before God if you have taken Christ as your lamb. Never question your position. Never ever. Your position is a permanent fixed place. But there's a second thing that happens after we come to Christ. The first thing that God wants to do is to convince us of our fallenness so that we will turn to Him and bestow upon Christ the depths of our sin so that He can bestow upon us the wonders of His righteousness. But having done that, the second goal that I think from that point forward God is at trying to accomplish in our lives is to convince us of our helplessness beyond that point to actually then begin to see a life change and transformation take place in us and through us as a result of what Christ has done for us. And because of that, we live out of this sense that this extraordinary gift has been given to us, this magnificent blessing has been bestowed upon us. We've been given a position of right standing before God. But so many people, so many believers, and I've been a minister for 43 years, so many believers labor under the feeling that their position before God goes like this because of their condition of life on a daily basis. They believe that that because today was a bad day or yesterday I, I, I failed or last week I came short, that somehow my position with God has been deeply troubled by this. That some, something has happened to cause my, my, my connection to the Father to be broken and breached by the condition of my daily life. And as a result, they live in a tendency to believe that the, the problem is that I've got this position, but I have threatened this position by the condition of my daily life. And so what I've got to do is I've got to regain this position of right standing with God. I've got to do something in order to obtain and reconnect and reset my life and recalibrate myself back to a place of righteousness. But you can never recalibrate to a righteousness that's already calibrated as perfect. You cannot add to a perfect righteousness. And your perfect righteousness has nothing to do with you. To question your righteousness is to question the perfection of the Lamb. To even for a moment suggest that his perfect sacrifice was incomplete is not to honor him. You have to come to an absolute certainty in your spirit 
that when you came to the Father in your fallenness, He was not interested in the depths of your depravity, in the details of your failure. You were not the object of His inspection. He simply took a glance at the perfections of his eternal son and said, the lamb is worthy. What a travesty if the church would ever miscommunicate to a poor, broken, lost, fallen person that they had to do something to fix the problem that they can't do. To understand this is to come to a place of such assurance and security in a permanent fixed relationship that I have with God My righteousness is a position that I have been born to by the grace of God that I made no contribution to any more than a prince made himself a prince. He was born to the position. And that position does not change on the basis of the daily condition of my life. You can never approach your daily condition in order to try and obtain the position. You have to start from the position if you ever want to change your condition. Amen? So when you start from the position of permanent, perfect, right standing before Father because of the perfections of the Lamb that was offered on our behalf, then we qualify to no longer think that the condition of our life is going to be changed by our efforts to try and manifest and manufacture something in gratitude, appreciation for, or in order to try and repair a position we think has been lost because our condition was imperfect. Instead, we'll come to realize that the same God who has provided for us a position based on His perfections that we did not earn and did not deserve alone is the one who can then transform our condition by the power of His life inside of us. He's not asking us to now begin to grit our teeth, pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, and determine that we are going to reclaim the position we've lost because of our imperfections of the past week. But instead, we say, I thank the Lord that I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. He became sin for me so that I might become the righteousness of Christ Jesus. I thank you that it's not by works of righteousness which I've done, but according to his mercy he saved me through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. 
I thank you that I have been given a permanent position of sonship before the Father. I am in right standing with God irregardless of what happens on my daily basis. Nothing changes my position with God permanently. When I start from there, I'm in the place that God wanted me to be in order for him to say, now, let me help you with your condition. Stop trying to earn a position that you already have. Instead, change your identity to the position that's been bestowed upon you and it will begin to transform how you approach your life because what you're going to discover is in the same way God did not inspect the man, he inspected the lamb. In the same way God is not looking to you to change your condition. He's looking to you to get out of his way so that he can express his condition before the Father through you. That's why the Bible says we have a treasure, a treasure in a jar of clay, a cracked pot, a dirt-made vessel. And the reason why God put an inestimable treasure inside of a clay pot is expressly so that the excellence of the power that would be seen would be of him and not of us. He's not interested in our efforts. He's not interested in our attempts to imitate or act like him. He's not interested in us willfully gritting our teeth, pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps and trying to be better. What he's interested in us doing is letting his treasure indwell our earthen vessel and then the excellence of his power begin to operate through us so profoundly that everybody who sees it will know that's not coming from you. Man, men don't act like that. Churches don't act like that. Families don't act like that. That's got to be the excellence of the power of the Lord in you. You see, in the same way, you have to get to the point that you absolutely surrender to the idea that there's anything you can do to contribute to the establishment of your position before God. You have to come to understand as a Christian, the very core of the gospel, the very heart of the word of God is that man cannot do this. This is not a surprise to God that we can't do it. He's shocked that we think we ever could. I just see Jesus saying, how long do I have to be with you before you figure this out? 
You can't, and I never said you could, not once. But I can, and I always said I would. So once we get the first task completed with God, which is the recognition of our fallenness and our incapacity to do anything about it, and our final, and some of you are 40 years in the Lord, and you still haven't got this yet. That from the moment you accepted Christ, you were given a right standing with the Father that has never, ever changed. Nothing you ever did. Take your worst, blackest, darkest moment. It didn't change your standing before God at all. And it didn't shock him, surprise him, overwhelm him. Oh my God, I didn't know he was going to do that. I wouldn't have given him my righteousness. If, I mean, I, how did that show up on the calendar? Did, did, do you know that every sin you have ever committed up to this very moment was on the cross before you were born? I hope so. All of your sin was future to the cross. So if, if one slipped in that he didn't know about, oh my gosh, we can't crucify the Son of God afresh. What can we do? Sorry. Didn't cover that one. And can I tell you something else? This is dangerous territory. Paul got a lot of trouble for preaching grace this strong. Everyone you're going to commit was there too. Already. Can I tell you something else? The more died in the wool, committed, convinced you become of that, the fewer of them that will be. The more convinced you become of your righteousness, the more you will begin to see the manifestation of his holiness in your life. The more you keep trying to obtain a position that's already been given to you by the condition of how you live your life, the more off track you're going to go. Let me try and explain it to you like this. I've been married for 40 years. My wife has a position in my life. She's my wife, period. Can I tell you in 40 years, the condition of my husbandness, the condition of her wifeliness, has had good days and bad days. Amen? It's going up, going down, going this way, going that way. You know? But I'm going to tell you something positions never changed and it won't change as long as we're breathing and because we both know that we want more to change the way we live in the condition of our life because we know we have a permanent position can I tell you something amazing happens in a church when a pastor knows he's been given a position in the hearts of his people? His condition may be human, frail. He may fail at times, come up short, forget to return a phone call. If God keeps moving, he may not know your name 
one day or your kids' names. But if a pastor ever gets convinced that he has a position, I'm your pastor, even if the condition of my daily life is human, I'm going to tell you, that awakens something in the heart of a pastor. Same thing happens in the heart of a church. When you get to the point where you say to each other, you have a position in my heart, you're my brother. Your condition was you were a jerk last week. Didn't change our position. Something happens in a church that begins to operate like that. And when a person gets to a point where they have completed the first process of getting established in their position and they're saying, Lord, now I want the transformation of my condition, the answer is not, so I'm going to really work hard to produce this new life. Rather, it comes by recognizing, Lord, it's by, verse 10, carrying about in my body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus starts to get manifested in my body. It's not by me trying harder. It's by me quitting sooner. It's by me saying, Lord, in the same way I looked at your word and I saw the quality of your holiness and I saw the quality of my destructiveness and I know that there was nothing I could do to bridge that gap. I can't make this that. So you had to come here and give me that to this. In the same way, I look at the condition of the quality of love, of peace, of purity, of care, of concern that you want to see being manifest in my life and I realize I can't do this. And he says, A, you pass. But Lord, I want this, I know. So get out of my way. Because when your love runs out, that's where mine starts. Where your purity comes to an end, that's where mine begins. As a matter of fact, the quicker you get to the realization of the impossibility of you producing this, the quicker you will get out of my way and let me show you what I can do through you that you can't do for me or without me. Anything less than this is not the Christian life. Whatever else it is, it's not the Christian life. And yet, millions of Christians live the entirety of their lives somehow seeing Jesus' death on the cross as being like God giving us a W instead of, a, instead of an F. We had Fs. So he's given us a W. We, we withdrew from the course. He's cleaned the slate. We get a new report card. Now go and make A's. But you see, what God did is he gave us all A's. And then he said, now that you have the grade given to you, now let me express the grade through you. Not you try and live up to it, you try and let my death work in you so that my life can be manifested in you. Let me get you out of the picture so that like Paul, we can say, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives through me. And the life I now live, I'm living by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And what does all this have to do with 
Pastor Appreciation Day. <laughs> everything, 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 everything. I, I so appreciate the honor as a pastor for 40 years and a minister for 43 that you're showing to your pastor. But can I tell you what I see in your pastor and in his wife? I see two people who figured out they couldn't do it. Because see, anything that I have to take responsibility to do, I have to pull it off. And so what that means is that my life and my ministry is going to be limited by what I can look like I'm doing, mostly look like it, not do it, but look like I'm doing. In John chapter 6, and I'm pulling to a close, in John chapter 6, there were 5,000 people besides men and women, children besides, who had come to hear Jesus preach, and he preached for a long time. And the Bible says that then his disciples said, basically, Lord, you know, these people need to go back to their villages. And the Bible says that Jesus said to Philip, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But the next verse says, but this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. What was he testing him to do? He was testing him to see if Philip would factor Christ into the equation. But all Philip would factor into the equation was their money bag and the number of people that were there. And he looked at the money bag. He looked at the number of people that were there. He did some basic human calculation. He said, we can't do what's required with what we got. And then Jesus essentially said, well, what do you have? Well, Peter's brother Andrew came and said, well, we got five loaves of bread and we got two fish. But what is that among so many? See, again, they didn't factor Jesus into the equation. If, if, we, get, if, we, broke every, if we broke this into communion-sized giblets, <laughs> people wouldn't even get a taste. What's amazing about that to me is in John chapter 5, all Jesus talked about almost throughout John chapter 5 is he talked about how everything that he did, he did because the Father was working through him. The works that I do, I don't do on my own. He says, I, I myself can do nothing. He says in, in verse 17, my Father's working until now and I've been working. He says in John 5, 19, most assuredly I say to yourself, the Son can do nothing of himself. What he sees the Father do, for whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. Jesus was basically saying, I can't do anything without the Father doing it through me. But even with what they had seen in this situation, they still didn't factor Jesus into it. And if you don't factor Jesus into every verse of Scripture you read in here about how the condition of your life is supposed to be, if you factor in you, if Mike Atkins factors in Mike Atkins, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, I'm supposed to do that? With five loaves and two fish? What is that among such an extraordinary command? But Jesus said, bring the lad here to me.
He took the five loaves, the two fish, because he already knew what the Father was going to do. And he said, thank you, Father, for what you're about to do. And when it was over, they had 12 baskets left over. When you factor Jesus into your condition, you'll find that the same Lord who offered a perfect sacrifice to give you a perfect position has the ability to produce in you 12 baskets full more than what you need if you'll stop trying to do it for him and let him do it through you. What I love about Chuck and Candace is they know who they are without him. And that is even rarer in this world. I want us to move towards prayer and I want you just to be still in your heart. Just close your eyes for a moment and just let this be an altar for just a moment and just right where you are. Are you by any chance in any way trying to still use your condition to obtain a position with God? If you are, can I urge you don't diminish the perfection of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ by thinking you have to add something to it in order to obtain a position that his sacrifice has already given you. Establish in your heart, I have the position of a perfect right standing before my heavenly father and nothing can change that forever from that position would you come to that place where like I have like Chuck has like Candace has like so many of the leaders in this church have of not trying harder but of relinquishing quicker all belief in the mythology that we can do it at all. And instead, as a church, as you look to the future, say, Lord, when we see 5,000 and women and children beside, we're not going to say, but what can we do with so little? We're going to say, Lord, our problem is your opportunity. So we're going to factor ourselves out. We're going to factor you in. And then we're going to watch the baskets start getting filled up with the leftovers of your grace and the wonders of your resurrection life in us and through us. Let's stand together. Would you do that with me? Pastor, come. Can somebody say amen? Wow. I just, I'm overwhelmed. Amen. Uh.
I just want to say a big wow. I just want to breathe that in. That is such a good word today. Do you receive that today? Amen. Man, I'm so thankful. Hey, as we transition right before we pray, uh, Pastor Chuck and Candace are going to be out in our courtyard. We'd love for you to stop by. Now, there's a bunch of you, so you're going to have to kind of take a quick pick with them, uh, but greet them. If you have a card, you can drop it off. We have some refreshments. Hang out out there. We're just going to celebrate this day. But before we do, we're going to pray this prayer. I'm going to pray it over you. We receive this. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. In Jesus' name, can you say amen? Hey, one more time, lift up a hand of praise. We thank you, Father, for this day. We thank you, Father. Amen, amen.